Thanks, Gene. I shared in the first service that I had a secret pal when I was in college, but she blew her cover the first time she wrote me on her own personalized stationery. So I acted surprised a year later when we found out who our secret pals were as best I could. This morning we're continuing in our sermon series uh, on the book of Genesis, beginning at the beginning. So far we've been through the seven days of creation, God creating human beings in God's own image. We've seen the humans placed in the Garden of Eden and we've seen them disobey God's command and now they're outside of Eden and you're going to see this morning as we read the, the story of Cain and Abel that things are only getting worse. So as we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us bow for a word of prayer. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, blow through this place, we pray. Open our eyes and our ears that we might hear your word for us today and in our hearing, equip us to obey. All this we pray in the name of Christ, the word made flesh. Amen. The New Testament lesson is 1 John 3, verses 11 through 18. Listen now for God's word to you. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. All who hate a brother or sister are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this, that he, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? Little children, let us love, not in word or, or speech, but in truth and action. And the Old Testament lesson is Genesis chapter 4, the first 16 verses. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, 
let us go out into the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think ambiguity is one of the hardest things for human beings to deal with. We much prefer the cut and dry to the opaque and obscure, right? We want answers and explanations. We want to observe patterns and decipher cause and effect. We want to know when someone is guilty and when someone is innocent. Ambiguity, for the most part at least, feels like nails on a chalkboard to us. And there's a lot of ambiguity in this story about Cain and Abel, which makes it a rather hard text to interpret. The ambiguity starts right away with God's reactions to each of these brothers' offerings. God has regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God has no regard. And at face value, this seems terribly unfair, right? And so as we contemplate this text, we find ourselves wanting to resolve the ambiguity that's here. Why does God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? There must be a reason, right? And so we may find ourselves tempted to fill in the details, But the text doesn't give us any reason at all. It simply says that for whatever reason, God accepts the one and not the other. Some interpreters offer a range of speculation related to the kind of offering God prefers or the manner in which the offerings are presented. But the truth is, the text provides no distinction between these two brothers' offerings, leaving us in conjecture about how to fill in the gaps. And interestingly, believe it or not, that seems to be what's going on in the oldest translation of the Bible. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that began in the 3rd century BC. And usually in Genesis, the Septuagint translates the Hebrew word for word into Greek with incredible accuracy. But in this text, there's some evidence that the translators tried to resolve some of the ambiguity that exists in the original text. For instance, though the Hebrew uses the same word to describe the offerings that Cain and Abel each bring before the Lord, the Greek translation offers two different terms for the two offerings, which seem to suggest that Cain's offering was somehow inherently inferior to Abel's. 
And furthermore, the Septuagint emphasizes Abel's goodness. God looks upon Abel's offering as an expression of Abel's genuine love for God. It's called a gift. Cain's offering, meanwhile, is called sinful later on in the text, even though that's not present at all in the Hebrew original. And so on account of the Septuagint, Abel becomes a sort of righteous martyr in the history of this text's reception and tradition. And in the New Testament, which depended largely on the Septuagint for its Old Testament allusions and quotations, Cain is depicted almost like an Old Testament Judas. Hebrews 11 says that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. And in our text from 1 John today, we heard Cain's deeds were evil, while Abel's were righteous. Now, it may well have been the case that Cain's offering was somehow inferior to Abel's, or maybe Cain was just a bad dude. But if we try to resolve the ambiguity that exists in this text too soon, we may miss some of what's going on subsequently in the rest of the story. You see, after Cain's offering is rejected, he gets very angry, and in good biblical parlance, his countenance falls. That is, he gets dejected. Why the long face, God asks Cain. Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? And knowing the answer, God gives Cain an exhortation that's especially poignant given the ambiguity that exists surrounding the offerings. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you can master it. God encounters Cain in a moment in which Cain has decided that life is unfair. He's angry and he's sullen and he wants to lash out. Sin is lurking at his door like a lion poised to pounce on its prey. God warns Cain that sin is coming for him, but assures him that it need not overcome him. You must master it, God says emphatically. God calls on Cain to maintain a firm sense of self-control in the midst of his anger and rage. Don't act out of your anger, God says. But Cain, of course, fails to master the sin that lurks at his door. And instead, his sin overcomes him and he kills his brother Abel, thereby setting into motion the cycle of violence that continues to spin all around us to this day. Cain was overcome by his perception that life is simply unfair. And indeed, all of us face moments in our lives where something seems unfair. I don't mean unfair in the sort of nihilistic sense that everything is random and meaningless, nor do I mean unfair in the sense that justice is unattainable and so shouldn't bother to be pursued. I mean simply that sometimes things don't go our way. Sometimes things don't go as planned. Sometimes we get the short end of the stick. When Cain's offering is rejected, he slams into one of those serious obstacles in life that leave us feeling enraged and angry. Anger builds up in his chest as his fight-or-flight instincts prepare him for battle. It's how we feel when someone less competent gets the promotion that we deserve. 
It's how we feel when someone else gets credit for all the work we did behind the scenes to make a project a success. It's how we feel when we studied harder for that test, but our best friend gets a better grade. I read last month that the world's oldest man just died, Freddie Blom of South Africa. Amazingly, he was a heavy smoker, and and during South Africa's ban on the sale of tobacco for the COVID-19 quarantine, Freddie had to roll his own cigarettes on his 116th birthday. Meanwhile, six out of every 100 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer in our lifetimes. Some oncologists are studying a troubling trend of increasing lung cancer diagnoses in young, otherwise healthy non-smokers. Such a juxtaposition of circumstances creates dreadful ambiguity, right? We want to know why these things happen to one and not another, but there just isn't an explanation. We can't make things so simple. From our vantage point, certain things in life seem strikingly unfair. And so the message of this text is admittedly harsh and deeply challenging, but certainly relevant to us nonetheless. God calls for self-control specifically in the face of circumstances that seem unfair. God warns us that when we feel anger, it is easy to decide that what we're feeling is in fact righteous indignation. And then with the word righteous attached to our self-justification, we're happy to lash out and set aside all restraint. Cain is warning us that when we fail to master the sin that lurks at our door, the consequences are often violent and usually disastrous. Now, self-control doesn't mean thinking we're powerless to bring about change. Self-control doesn't mean sitting passively by in the face of injustice. It doesn't mean staying silent when we should speak. No, these are, in fact, sins of a different type. Self-control means maintaining diligence and clarity of mind, even in our assertive attempt to remedy a situation as much as possible. Self-control means pursuing justice by a means other than more injustice, creating reconciliation instead of pursuing retribution. Self-control, in the words of poet Rudyard Kipling, means keeping your head about you when all around you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. The Apostle Paul explains the concept like this, Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the essence of self-control. It calls not only for mastery of destructive impulses, but also for a different kind of engagement, one that blows against the wind of prevailing cycles of violence, one that flows against the current of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth mentality. This is a tall order, but it remains imperative. Cain's failure to master his most sinister impulses is something we see today throughout our society. We may not be murderers, but we too fail to exhibit self-control in ways that are detrimental to our well-being and advancement. Let's consider the most obvious example. As the election draws near and as the polarization in our country intensifies, we see more and more examples of people failing to maintain self-control over their tongues, right? 
Many of us have instances when we fail to master the harsh language that pours forth from our lips when things get political. Our public discourse from both sides of the aisle exhibits little self-restraint or control. Perhaps this is related to a larger shift to increasing cyber communication, which has become infamous over the last couple of decades and has only accelerated during the pandemic. Behind the cloak of perceived anonymity, or what psychologists call the online disinhibition effect, people say things on the internet that they would never say to someone face to face. And as a result, cyberbullying has become an enormous threat to our youth. The elderly are often scammed and preyed upon, and we seem to be losing our capacity for honest conversation and civil disagreement. And this sort of hostility towards one another is bad enough out there in the world, but it sometimes finds its way into our churches as well. We cannot act on certain impulses outside of the church and then suddenly excel at self-control when we enter these walls. If only the church were such a magical haven, we'd all want to be pastors. But our lives aren't so compartmentalized. And any willingness to forego restraint in one area of life is bound to have ripple effects into other areas of our lives. So I think we must always be attentive to this dynamic at play in our lives, and especially in our church. As Christians, we must set an example for the rest of the world about what it means to avoid a war of words. This doesn't mean that we don't talk about hard things. To the contrary, it means we demonstrate how to talk about the tough stuff without being mastered by any inner hostility or enmity that might lurk at our door. Look, it's been a tough year, and this pandemic certainly seems unfair. Many of us have good reason to be frustrated and perhaps even angry about the circumstances of our lives right now. Such frustration is obvious in our society as people around us lose their patience. But as Christians, compassion and forbearance for one another are mandatory. And we should be clear-eyed about our inner lives as November approaches and as we engage with a world that is suspicious and irritable. But the good news is God doesn't give us impossible commands especially when we lean on the strength of God's Spirit. God would not have told Cain, you can master this, if Cain must inevitably succumb to the worst of himself. The good news is that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit at work in us. The good news is that just as words spoken in rage can be destructive, words spoken in love carry incredible constructive potential. The good news is that love can be as contagious as hate. Love can overcome fear, and love can break us out of the cycle of Cain's violence and hostility. So when we face circumstances that seem unfair, and when we feel the sting of a harsh word or a breach of trust, let's dare to remember that God calls us to a higher road. And that by God's spirit, we can learn from our mistakes. We can grow in self-control and we can represent the power of love and unity in a world that desperately needs 
a Christ-like witness. So may it be so. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.